Welcome back, everybody. I could not be more excited for our guest today on Above Board, Mr. Alan Stein Jr. Alan is a world-renowned speaker and corporate performance coach. He's also worked with some of the highest performing basketball players on the planet, names such as Kobe Bryant, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant. In fact, I'd actually like to lead this introduction with a quote from Kevin Durant, where he went on to say, and I quote, Alan played a huge role in my development on and off the court, and his guidance helped me get to where I am today. Alan has also written two books, the first called Raise Your Game, and then one of my personal favorites, Sustain Your Game, High Performance Keys to Manage Your Stress, Avoid Stagnation, and Beat Burnout. Alan, to say I'm excited is probably the understatement of the year. Welcome to Above Board, man. Oh, well, I'm equally excited. And that was a fantastic intro. I, I might have to bring you on the road with me, man. That was a nice <laughs> You got it. I I'll, be, I'll be your hype guy. I'll be your hype guy. Yes, I would love that, man. That was awesome. I appreciate it. I'm equally excited. This will be a fun conversation. Well, I, you know, I think I'd like to start off by sharing um, a, a story about your book, Sustain Your Game. So uh, I'm going to brag on you a bunch throughout today's show. Um, I think that book specifically is just so worth getting. It's one of my favorites. But uh, on page 215, you have a subchapter called Seeking Rejection. And it's amazing because out of all these pages, I don't know, it's maybe like 250 pages of the book. But sometimes you read a book and like one or two pages stands out to you. And for me, that's what this was. And so it was a story where you detailed uh, comedian Emily Winter, uh, her story of pursuing, putting herself in these uncomfortable situations. And basically her MO for the beginning of that year was to seek 100 rejections of her work. So kind of looked like her just pitching and submitting to print and media outlets over and over again in situations where she knew the likely outcome was the answer would be no. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, actually, that's how we connected. I reached out to you because I, I, I basically shared with you, Hey man, this was so powerful. And we even did a podcast on the year of 100 no's and, and that's something I'm pursuing this year. Um, of course I have my thoughts on the value in doing something like this, but I'm kind of interested maybe as we start off to hear your perspective on taking risks and the ability to face failure, and then maybe tying that into why that's such a crucial part of one's success. So if you're pursuing a hundred no's this year, would it have been more helpful if I would have said no to being on this podcast? Exactly. I, I was very excited that you said yes. In fact, I think at first it started off as a very polite no. And I've actually heard you share with other people, like being able to be tactful and, and you know, just saying, hey, out of respect of my time, just being like a very polite no. And it started off as a polite no. And then we just, you know, stayed connected and and uh, so it would have been helpful, but I'm much happier that you're here talking to me today. I am as well. For a little bit of context for your listeners, I write the books that I need to read myself. So I find it somewhat liberating and, and borderline therapeutic to dive into the very things that trouble me, that that challenge me, that, that I've always had difficulty with. And uh, as a uh, previously self-described people pleaser, um, Saying no has always been really challenging for me because I, I've, you know, I mean, without going too far down that rabbit hole, you know, therapy has helped me uncover the fact that, you know, there's parts of me that have felt so insecure and so unworthy that the only way I'd be worthy of other people's affection or admiration or appreciation is by constantly trying to please them and say yes. So that's, that's part of it. And then the other half, which I certainly know a lot of people can relate to, um, 
being told no uh, and or being quote unquote rejected um, causes severe discomfort and can also trigger certain insecurities and and baggage from our past. So this whole concept was was really fascinating for me and and I enjoyed diving into it and you know that was the first doing the research for the book was the first I had heard of Emily's uh, little experiment and uh, I was riveted by it and you know both of these areas are areas in my life where. I'm still far from mastery. And I say this all of the time, you know, uh, everything I share on stage and everything I share on page is not coming from a place of mastery. You know, I'm, I'm not getting straight A's in any of this stuff. These are things that still challenge me. But what I can say with a huge smile and a tremendous amount of pride is the progress I've made in both areas. Uh, on the one hand, um, I am getting more comfortable professionally, politely, and tactfully being able to say no to things that aren't the right fit for me at that point in time. And I'm also getting much better at building my grit and resilience at being able to put myself out there and, and hear the word no and to face different types of rejection. And, you know, um, as a professional speaker, um, the latter part of that has been really important. You know, what what a lot of people don't realize, um, even the, the most accomplished speakers, you know, that are in high demand um, still get told no of pretty decent amount. And, you know, for me as a speaker, uh, one thing I've learned is this business has a lot of ebbs and flows. Um, and there's, there's runs of momentum, just like in any sport, you know, I'll, I'll have some months where it's like everything I, I reach for and apply for turns to gold and I'm on fire. And then I have some other months where the exact opposite is true. And, you know, it's like, no matter what I put out in the world, it doesn't seem somebody wants me on their stage. And, and I've learned to be able to balance both seamlessly and never get too high and never get too low. So uh, I know that was a mouthful and I don't know that it directly answered what you were looking for, but both portions of that uh, ability to say no and the ability to hear no um, was an important part of Sustain Your Game and has been something I've really been trying to work on myself. Well, I like what you said. I never get too high and I never get too low. And uh, in the book, the, the term you, you detail this whole concept around is, is post-traumatic strength. And it was this idea that like, you're not, if you're not experiencing rejection, then you're also not uh, the other side of that. You're not growing either. And I'm kind of curious, just as your career has unfolded, because obviously like in the intro I mentioned, I mean, you, you worked with some of the most elite basketball players on the planet. Uh, how, how did that transition look in being a, a performance coach for Kobe Bryant? I mean, just these amazing athletes. And then in time, taking that skill and translating that into working with leaders and, and, and folks in the, in the business and professional setting. I'm curious what maybe failures looked like for you and how you've kind of turned that into, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to create post-traumatic strength out of this. The number one North star that I've used my entire life stems from arguably the best advice I've ever received. And thankfully I was able to receive this in middle school. So fairly early in life. And I had a coach tell me that the key to success, the key to high performance, the key to fulfillment. I mean, really you fill in the blank, but the key is, is finding what it is that you love to do, what you're really passionate about and finding what it is that you're naturally pretty good at, where you have some talent and then find where those two things intersect and wherever those two points intersect is called your strength zone. And the more time and energy and effort you can invest in improving in your strength zone, 
then the happier, more fulfilled, more successful, more high performing you'll be. Uh, and for most of my life, or at least the beginning portion of my life, that intersection was as a basketball player. Uh, it was something I absolutely loved to do. And it was something I was at least decent at enough to play at the high school and college level. Uh, but then when I realized that I didn't have the talent to be able to play post-college, then I needed to find a new intersection and I decided to get into coaching, but more specifically uh, performance coaching or strength and conditioning. Um, and once again, it still met those two criteria. Um, thankfully, uh, having two parents that were both elementary educators, I've always been fairly decent at being able to articulate my perspective, to be able to motivate, to be able to teach and to instruct. And so that was where that, that point moved. Um, after a 15-year career in the basketball performance training space, I started to, to feel some early signs of burnout. Uh, I started to find that I wasn't enjoying my work as much. I wasn't as fascinated by my work as much. And, and I knew that it was time for me to make a pivot and I needed to figure out, all right, where is this point of intersection going to go now? And it ended up going to being a professional speaker, um, something that I've, I've kind of had on the back burner for the last several years of my uh, performance coaching career of something that I wanted to try. But once again, it still met that criteria and uh, being able to make that leap um, you know, I've always been self-employed. So even when I was in the basketball performance training space, you know, I've always been responsible for my own livelihood. I've, I've, I've never in theory worked for someone else or had a quote unquote, uh, typical normal standard job. So for me, it was a much easier leap. Um, in fact, I didn't really look at it as me changing jobs as much as I was just changing audiences and I was changing the, the delivery method. So instead of being in a gym or in a weight room, helping basketball players run faster, jump higher and improve their, you know, athleticism, I was now on stages and in boardrooms, uh, helping executives and sales professionals and folks in HR improve their performance. So um, maybe some of that was some, some naivete, if you will. Uh, but I really didn't look at it as it being this huge you know, catastrophic difference. It was just a matter of I'm switching audiences and I'm going to try something new that I'm really curious about, that, that, that I'm, I'm fascinated by learning the nuances and ins and outs of this new craft. I'm fascinated by the tenets of leadership and building culture and accountability and communication and habits and mindset. So um, each of the, the careers that I've had from player to coach to now keynote speaker have kind of built upon each other. And I've, I draw on experiences from my playing days and my coaching days in almost everything that I share uh, to my corporate audiences now. So um, I don't know if and when that intersection will change again. Uh, I absolutely love what I do right now. And, and I don't foresee changing that anytime soon. But I'm also hoping I'm going to be on the planet for another 40, 50, 60 years. Uh, so, you know, time will tell. I, I love where you talked about, you know, finding that intersection of, of your strength zone. And I've heard you, I, I've actually heard you talk about this on, on Ed Milet's podcast a year ago, but so you find that strength zone of yours. And then I've also kind of listened to you talk about this idea of detaching from the outcomes. So now that you're working in the, in your, we, we call it at our office, we call it your zone of genius. Oh, so it's, it. it's working in the, the work that not only gives you passion and energy, but that you, you excel at and you're good at. And when you can find those two things that intersect, 
it's you're, you're going to be able to really, you know, hopefully have joy in the work that you do. But I, I do think detaching from outcomes was a really important concept I've heard you talk about before, because a lot of times, and I'll translate it to my world, it's like, well, if we, you know, I think I do a lot of great work in the financial planning space, right? Uh, we, we work with clients, we're building, you know, we're just celebrating our five-year anniversary. I've been in the industry for 15 years. I mean, this is my joy. I love doing this, as does my business partner. But let's say, you know, you, you don't land the big client or you have this big prospect that you, you, you come up to the plate, you swing and you miss the outcome of the win, I guess, or the high of like, great, we got this, you know, new client in. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then maybe share, if you would, for our listeners, I've heard this story and I love it, but maybe share the unseen hours, the Kobe Bryant story. Sure. Well, once again, a lot to unpack there, man. You yeah. Sorry, man. Big loaded no, questions here. No, not at all. I absolutely love this. You're, you're so much fun to, to talk with. One of my favorite parts about the work that I do. I mean, I love the ability to share things with audiences that will help their lives. It'll help their personal lives, their professional lives. It'll help their individual lives. It'll help their organizational lives. And I, I really and truly get an intoxicating high when I'm either on a podcast or I'm on stage uh, and I'm sharing something and I, I can almost feel the light bulb go off and, and, and folks feel like, you know, this is something that I can uh, really use. The other part about the work that I absolutely love is it holds me accountable to living my life to the same core values that I'm preaching to everyone else. And, you know, all of these things that I share with audiences as I said before, I'm not coming from a place of mastery. These are still things that trip me up. And yeah, I talked about it on the Ed Milet show a year ago, and I'm talking about it now with you, the ability to detach from outcomes. And I'll say the same thing that I said before. I'm proud of the progress that I've made in that area. I do a much better job now of detaching from outcomes than I did one, two, five, ten 10 years ago. So I love the direction I'm going but I'm not anywhere close to the peak of the mountain yet. I still get tripped up by that. I still get bummed out when I have my sight set on a certain goal or a certain speaking engagement and it doesn't quite work out. But what I'm very proud of is I've, I've developed kind of a self-soothing coping mechanism to be able to deal with that. And, and I said something before and I'll, I'll say it again because it's really important. I've conditioned myself and I've trained myself to not let myself go too high or too low. Now, I embrace my feelings and my emotions, and I want to be able to celebrate the wins, but I also want to give myself the space and the permission to be a little bummed out during some of the losses. So this is not about being numb and just towing a line. You know, I still feel the highs and I feel the lows. I just don't let them go to extreme levels. And, you know, I don't know when this will actually air, but at the time of this recording, one week ago, in one of the first hours of my workday, I received a DM from someone on LinkedIn from a Fortune 50 brand that asked if I was available to speak at one of their leadership retreats. So when you're in my world, that is about as high of a high as you're going to get professionally speaking. I mean, I won't mention the brand, but it's a, a brand that everybody knows and uses. And I was on an absolute high. Less than 30 minutes later, I got a notification from my agent that an event that I was really hoping to speak at at the end of July decided to go in another direction and hire another speaker. So I go from an incredible high to less than 30 minutes later, feeling really, really dejected and bummed out. And, you know, now that's an extreme example. Every day is not like that. But, you know, when I kind of take a step back and I, I pull the lens back, you know, 
most weeks and most months in my vocation have those ebbs and flows. And, you know, for the 29 minutes that I was excited about the, uh, the fortune, you know, 50 grand reaching out, you know, I, I didn't do anything, you know, uh, uh, reckless in order to celebrate, but boy, did I puff my chest out a little bit and feel good. But then along the same lines, when I, I got the news that I wasn't going to speak at the event that I had hoped, you know, I gave myself the space to be a little bummed out. To, to be a little disappointed. Um, honestly, I was a little discouraged. And, you know, those are usually not feelings that I have a lot of, but when I do have them, I don't suppress them. I don't resist them. I don't ignore them. I allow myself to feel how I'm going to feel. And, and it was funny because I, I even said that day, you know, and the rest of the day, to be honest, I was a little, I was a little bummed out. It knocked me off my game a little bit, but I've also developed something I call the 24 hour rule which is I never allow myself to stay too high or too low for more than 24 hours. So I basically said, you know what, for the rest of the day, if I'm a little grouchy, I'm a little irritable, I'm a little dejected, I'm a little disappointed, I'm a little discouraged, that's okay. That's a human emotion and there's nothing wrong with feeling that. But I also know that I'll sleep well tonight and when I wake up tomorrow, you know, I'll move on to the next play, which is something I preach all of the time and was able to do that. And, and to be honest, haven't thought about that event since just bringing it up right now during this conversation. So that's an example of, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the work that I've made, the self-work to allow myself to feel those roller coaster of emotions um, without them lingering, without them having a, a lasting effect. And I also have to acknowledge, you know, that, that there are a lot of things in this world that are binary, you know, and in order to have up, you have to have down. In order to have on, you have to have off. Uh, in order to have, you know, the joy of someone wanting me to speak on their stage, you have to deal with the disappointment of someone else not wanting you to speak on their stage. Those things have to coexist, just like in sport. That is what makes sport so riveting. At the end of every single game, someone is deemed the winner and someone is deemed the loser. And you know, what makes winning so joyous, especially winning the big one, the championship is the fact that it's, you know, juxtaposed with uh, the juxtaposition of losing and that that's at risk. And, and to me, that's what can keep things exciting. And uh, yeah, so this is all stuff that I'm constantly working on. And back to your original question, which I did not forget, what helps with this mindset is the detaching of, uh, from outcomes. It's learning to love the process. It's, it's, it's not tying your self-worth and your self-confidence and your self-belief to certain outcomes. Because if how you feel about yourself ebbs and flows with all of these external metrics that I just mentioned, that's going to be a roller coaster of a life. And I don't want to be on that roller coaster. I realize that the external results are going to ebb and flow but that doesn't mean my happiness needs to. It doesn't mean my sense of fulfillment and certainly not my sense of self-worth. Because, you know, had I landed that gig that I was hoping to, that doesn't make me any better than I currently am right now. It just means in that instance, the dominoes fell my way. And I have to remember that not getting that gig or sometimes, you know, the, the losses, you know, you can get three or four or five of them in a row. And that's when you really test yourself of, I still believe in myself. I still believe in my message and what I do. I've hit a little bit of a streak here, but like a shooter in a bad slump, I'm going to get out of it. And I, I don't let my, my positivity or my optimism waver just because I don't get a few of the external results that I had hoped for or had preferred. So learning to detach your value 
from your performance or from the external results for me has been an absolute game changer. You're, you're, what I love about this conversation is that I, I know you to be such a, a rules-based process-oriented person as I've, as I've listened to you and I've consumed your information over the years. And I, what I was going to ask, and I'm glad you said this, is like, how do you actually, like getting a little more tactical, how do you actually detach from some of those outcomes? And I love the 24-hour rule. I think that's important for someone, uh, someone like myself to hear that. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners, I've learned, and I'm, I'm curious of your opinion of this, but I've learned that I feel the losses way more than I feel the wins. And that's a little bit frustrating when I, when I even say that out loud, because we've had some monumental things happen at our company. I've had some amazing personal life, you know, developments over the years and those things happen. And I'm like, yeah, okay, great. Like moving on next thing. You know, I, and, and it's almost, I'm able to stay very even keel and steady on the wins, yeah. but boy, do the losses sure hurt. You know, when, when you have like three or four or five losses in a row, it, and I, I don't know, I, I do think I'm speaking for the audience a little bit too. I think a lot of people sit in their feelings more when they have that loss versus when they have the win. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious your opinion of that, but I do, I love the whole detach from, from outcomes and the 24 hour rule gets super tactical for me because it helps me kind of realize like we're all a work in progress. And I love hearing you kind of even share, like, I'm just applying, even in my book, the stuff I write, I'm just applying the stuff I'm learning and trying to, I'm writing for myself to re-listen and hear and, and, and put emphasis on any, any thoughts that comes up for you on that as I, as we talk about detaching from outcomes? Oh, so many. This is <laughs> I'm loving this. I, I, I've got a mouthful for you again, just, just for clarity. There's nothing wrong with having goals. There's nothing wrong with having preferences. Like it would have been my preference to land that gig at the end of July. That is if, if someone all of a sudden said, Alan, you are in charge of the universe from this day forward, I would have made sure that I was on that stage to speak. There's nothing wrong with that. I just want to make sure that I'm clear that it's detaching your self-worth and your confidence and your belief in yourself from those outcomes. That's to me what's what's been the the, the game changer. And um, as far as the twenty four hour rule, I give myself that much room. But to be quite honest with you, it usually ends up just being the two or three hour rule. Usually, two or three hours later, I've already conditioned myself to move to the next play. I've I've found something else to be able to focus on or to pursue. Um, I chalk that up as a loss. It wasn't my preference. Um, and, and I move on, but I still give myself the space that if I need a full 24 hours to lick my wounds, there's nothing wrong with that, but it rarely takes that, that long. And, you know, the, the ability to have the resilience to move on when preferences aren't met or you don't get the outcomes that you wanted, um, that's, that's the game I'm playing. And I, I take a lot of pride in that. And, you know, going back to kind of the the speaking business that I'm in, an ideal year for me would be to do 60 paid speaking engagements in a year. I mean, this is my full-time vocation and that's the right amount of volume for me that I feel like I'm staying appropriately full, but I'm also home enough to be a present father with my my children. Um, I have some speaking colleagues that would rather do 30 or 40 a year. I've got some speaking colleagues that do 110, 120 a year. Everybody's got to find what's right for them. And I haven't run the exact math on it, but I would say if I had to guess in a year that I land 60 speaking engagements, I easily hear 120 no's or you're not the right fit or you, you don't even hear anything back, which it's about a two to one ratio for every speaking engagement I land. 
I probably am denied two others. So you have to learn to have that resilience. Uh, I am very similarly wired to you in that the losses, if you will, are a much starker, sharper feeling than the wins. And I think that is because um, I do have so much confidence and I put so much into my preparation and so much into the unseen hours that I almost expect to win. I almost expect to land that gig. So when it happens, yeah, that was what was supposed to happen. It's when I don't get the gig that I'm somewhat surprised or befuddled on, on why that didn't. And then I know in my own case, and I'm not, you know, projecting this onto anyone else, you know, as I said, had some years of therapy and realized that, you know, I, I have some baggage from my past and from my childhood and some things that have, you know, made me feel not good enough or made me feel not worthy, things that I've questioned myself on. And I think that when I hear these no's or I get these rejections, they're a trigger for some of those deeper issues that I'm still working on and will be working on for the rest of my life. I think that's why it's such a sharp loss is because I'm thinking, you know, well, for temporarily, maybe I'm not good enough. You know, maybe they show someone that's a better speaker than I am. And that's, that's what I have to work through every single time. And, and, and here's what I say with a huge smile. I do believe that these challenging times, these, these losses, if you will, these rejections are nothing more than repetitions to practice exactly what it is that I'm talking to you about now. You know, every time I hear a no, it's an opportunity for me to practice facing some of these issues and some of this baggage that I'm dragging from the past. So it ends up being a win. It allows me another repetition to take a step forward and get better at detaching from outcomes, at being resilient, and 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 being able to move forward with self-confidence and self-belief. So um, this ratio of every speaking engagement I get, I probably get two no's, is actually a very healthy one. Um, because every time I get one of those no's, it allows me to strengthen and move forward. And, you know, I've always been a believer in the power of repetition. You know, if you want to get good at anything, you know, whether it's shooting free throws, playing the piano, or moving forward after being told no, the best way to improve any skill uh, is, is through repetition. So, um, I'm thankful that I have these opportunities to practice the very things that I haven't always been good at. Yeah. That's what I've loved about the year of 100 no's concept in the book is because for me, I really did look at it through the lens of sure. If, if I, if I seek to do this, there will be yeses that come as a byproduct of this, like this conversation that will be so fun to experience but I almost wanted to toughen my skin to the point of like, I can experience the no and then move on to the next play, which is something you talk a lot about. And I, it, I do love the parallels of, of sports and, and business culture and business world um, because your ability to move on to the next play, everything we've talked about is like the sharp, you know, feeling of, of that loss can be so difficult. And I don't know if you've, I'd be curious to know the answer to this if you have done one, but have you ever done the Enneagram test before? I have not. Have heard I, of it? I'm, I have heard of it. I'm vaguely familiar, but I have not done it myself. Well, it's, it's on my radar and I'm asking because we did a, we did a team event uh, yesterday and we all went through the test. We, we met with like an Enneagram speaker and talked through everything and come to find out that I'm a type three, which is called an achiever. And, you know, as I'm hearing this and, and she's talking about what an achiever is, of course, it's like, oh, cool, pat myself on the back, like, you know, high achieving, goal setting, goal focused, all those good things. And then they get to the cons list or, you know, if, you know, the, the, when you're in moments of stress, 
where you tend to negatively go as an achiever. And this idea of perfectionism, this idea of, of always winning and never losing and coping with loss. For me, this whole conversation is amazing and a little bit eye-opening that we just had this conversation yesterday. And I'm like, oh, I get it. Now there's like some psychology for me behind why I maybe feel this way. And you talk so much about focusing on the next play. And you've given a few really good examples I've heard over the years of, of Steph Curry's ability to do that. Are you comfortable sharing maybe a story about that or what, like what the next play means to you? Yeah, be happy to. And, and before I do that, you said something very insightful there that I think is so important for all of us that when we do hear, and everyone can frame this into whatever their vocation or whatever makes sense in their own life, when we do hear a no or we have a loss or we, we, we process something as being we've been rejected, it's important for me, at least in my process, to unpack that a little further and try to figure out why, you know, and, and when I'm fortunate enough and I'm grateful when I can actually get con a concrete reason, and we'll just keep using the same example, uh, when I get a concrete reason of why someone did not choose me for a speaking event, that is incredibly helpful to me. Um, because as soon as they do, I can put it into one of two categories. It's either something that was outside of my control or it's something that was within my control. If it was without outside of my control, you know, they said, uh, you know, you're, you, you, you kind of come from a sports background and we were looking for someone that came from a military background. Okay, well, I can live with that. I still wanted to speak at the event. It was still my preference, but I can rest my head, you know, peacefully at night knowing they just wanted something different that, that, that wasn't from my background. That I can easily move to the next play. No problem at all. Um, on the other hand, if there's something maybe that I could have done better, you know, maybe I had uh, a call with some of their executives prior to, and I, I wasn't my best self, or I didn't answer some of their questions as, as well as maybe I was capable of. So I, I could have performed at a higher level. Then I use that as a learning experience. If it was something within my control, then I make sure to learn the lesson from it so that the next time I'm in a somewhat similar situation, I will be more prepared and I'll be able to, to answer the call. So either way, I'm okay. Either way, if they say it was something outside of your control, I can move to the next play. If it was something within my control, I learn a valuable lesson, which I'm grateful for. And then I still move to the next play, but I'll be able to apply that wisdom moving forward. For me, the absolute hardest part, and this is something I still am challenged with, is when I don't get direct feedback on why they didn't choose me or all of a sudden, you know, the, the person that my agent has been, you know, communicating with just stops returning emails and calls. And then you're left with this blank space. You're, you're left with a blank space of why didn't they select me to speak at their uh, event. And what we have to be very, very careful of, or at least I have to be very careful of is not trying to fill in that blank with a false narrative to not make up a story to fill in that blank with that I have no idea if that is accurate or not. So if I start telling myself, well, they didn't pick me because they don't think I'm good enough or they don't think I'm ready for this big stage or they don't, what I don't know if that's true or not. So it doesn't serve me any anything positive by filling in the blanks with, with misinformation or a false narrative. So for me, the big challenge is still being able to move to the next play and being able to put that behind me, even if I don't know 
the reason for it. And this next play mentality is something I use all of the time in my life, you know, um, and I use it both on the positive uh, and on the negative side. I mean, even when something really great in my life happens, as I said, I allow myself to celebrate the win momentarily, but then it's time to move on to the next thing. You know, I don't, I don't want to be basking in the glory of something I did three months ago, three months later, you know, be thankful that, that things worked out at that time, be thankful that things went well, but you still got to move on. So I must say next play to myself a dozen times a day in a variety of different scenarios. And, you know, that ability to refocus the lens on what's right in front of you now, as opposed to being absorbed over something good or bad that has happened in the past uh, is a really helpful framing tool for me. What would you say to someone that is maybe not as willing to or a little more afraid to deal with conflict and confrontation? And I'm asking this for specifically based on what you said, where when if someone reaches out to you for for something, you've you've gotten really tactful and really good at very politely saying, no, I, I can't do that. And I think that's an amazing skill because most people would just ghost that person. You know, if someone's reaching out and I'm too busy, like the answer is, you know, I'm too busy, but I'm, I'm so busy. I'm not even going to reply to that person. But my point to saying your, your willingness to be a little confrontational is not in a negative way, just in the sense of like, Hey, I'll, I'll address why I can't do it. And politely, here's why I can't do it. And on the flip side, when it comes to booking, you know, a really big event, and then you find out that, um, you know, the, the, you know, their preference has changed and they want someone else speaking, you are seeking out wanting to know why. Um, now, sometimes you might get the answer, sometimes you don't, but it's, it's interesting that it sits with you worse when you don't know the answer. I feel like the average person would just be like, oh, pff, whatever, move on, they're lost. And, and you want to know why, because you want to get better. And I'm sure maybe this is, you know, your, your history is, you know, from adolescence through adulthood being, you know, in sports and, and an athlete. But what would you say to someone that, that is maybe sh shies away from, you know, they have avoidance of conflict and confrontation in a, in a healthy, constructive way, even. It's so fascinating to me that uh, every single word in the English language, which is the only language I speak, I assume this is true in other languages, but uh, carries an emotional connotation. And this is based on our experiences, our past, like so many different things that you and I can hear the exact same word and we can have very different feelings about that word. You know, one of the ones I see all the time now is, is the word grind, you know, rise and grind. You got to hustle and grind. Um, that word to me has a negative connotation. I don't ever want the word grind associated with me or my life, but there's nothing inherently wrong with the word. And if you're someone that does wake up every day and finds motivation in saying rise and grind, then it's, it's serving a great purpose for you. So it, it, that's a, a, an example of one word and you and I simply view it and we interpret it and we use it differently. So that's why I don't think there are any bad words per se. It's all a matter of how they make us feel. And another one of those words is confrontation. And I do believe there is a good portion of people, I being one of them for most of my life, that viewed the word confrontation as a negative thing, you know, that it was, it was combative, it was adversarial. And I've really tried to, to rewire myself to view that confrontation is simply meeting the truth head on. That that's, if I'm going to confront you about a behavior, about something you said or something you did, I care enough about you and I care enough about our relationship 
let's discuss this openly. Let's, let's not hide behind anything. Let's confront the issue at hand and we will both be better off for it. So I've, I've tried to rewire my feelings for that word and lean into that type of confrontation. It's, it's still not a natural reflex or a default for me. It's something I have to be very conscious of and intentional because uh, I'm, I'm rather non-confrontational at heart and have been for most of my life. So this is something I've really had to work on. Um, now, as far as the ability to say no, uh, we can look at this from two different angles. One, as, as we just talked about, I prefer when someone gives me feedback, when someone says no to me, I prefer to know the reason why. And if that's going to be my preference, then I want to be able to, to pay that forward. And if you reach out and ask if I can do something for you, if my answer is no, knowing that it, it, it's almost a pet peeve of mine when people don't get back to me, well, I don't want to do the same thing to you that bothers me. So I want to make sure that I give you the professional courtesy of letting you know. And, and what I choose to say no to really is just a matter of, is this an alignment with, with my core values, with my mission, with my vision of where I'm trying to go. And, and is it, if those things are in harmony, then there's a good chance the answer will be yes, assuming schedule availability. If you're asking me to do something that's, that's not in alignment with my personal core values and my mission and my vision and, and what I'm focused on at present, then I will politely say no. And, and I recognize that, that what you're asking is most likely in alignment with where you're trying to go. But I've learned that if, if I give up myself and I give up my time and I give up my energy to pursue something that everybody else is trying to do on their end, then it detracts from, from what I'm trying to accomplish and where I'm trying to go and the person that I'm trying to become. So those are the instances where I'll say, you know, this is just not a good fit at present. Um, you know, some of it has to do with, with pure logistics. You know, when I'm super busy from a travel and speaking standpoint and, and a parenting standpoint, there's not as much bandwidth to do some extra things. And I'll politely say no at that time. Then there's other times where I have a lot more freedom in my schedule and it might be a better fit. So many times when someone asks something, I can let them know that this is just not an alignment at present. But if you want to reach out in four to six months, I'll be happy to revisit it then. And I only say that if I genuinely mean that. I, I actually think you do someone a disservice if you string them along. If you tell someone maybe, when you know in your heart you're never going to say yes to that, you're actually doing them a disservice by, by leaving them hanging. So um, I try to have high discernment and high conviction in what things are the right fit and what things aren't. And I try to lead with as much honesty as possible, but I do believe you can use that. You, you, can, you can be very honest, confrontational, if you will, um, in a very polite, civil, respectful, and professional way. And that's, you know, it's been my experience that even the folks that I've said, no, this isn't the right fit for, usually are very appreciative of the fact that I let them know, that I didn't ghost them, or I didn't say, yeah, maybe I'll get back to you if I know in my heart that I won't. Uh, I really try and hold myself to an unbelievably high standard of, of honesty and, uh, and try not to say anything that I know in my heart isn't true. And that is not always easy because as we know, little white lies or, or little deflections are an easy way to get out of uncomfortable situations, but that's not in alignment with my core values. Honesty and integrity are two of my top core values. And I do the very best I can not to undermine that for any reason. You are such an intentional guy 
And I, I just, I love this entire conversation. I knew it'd be, I knew that it would be as good as it is. Um, just cause I've followed you for, for years now. And one of the things that I love about your intentionality, and actually what I would say is, is for folks listening to this, uh, we did a whole podcast, Alan, called you know, Easier Said Than Done. Like everything is easier said than done, right? And I think folks listening to this, look at you at where you are in your career, working with some of the greats, now speaking to amazing professional organizations and, and say like, well, yeah, that, that, you know, that's for Alan not, you know, that, you know, it's hard to translate that because they see where you are, but you've been so, you kind of blend this, this, you have this really good blend of like confidence and humility to you of like, Hey, I'm a work in progress. I've worked towards these things. And I've actually heard you share before that uh, atomic habits by James clear is like one of your, you know, one of your, your top reads, um, as is mine. Um, I, I love that book. And I just, I love this concept of like step-by-step, brick-by-brick, like you work to get there. What would you say to folks listening to that, you know, listening to this kind of wondering like, you know, just give us a little bit of of insight or motivation to the idea that this is, this is everything that you're talking about today is very much about the process and the step-by-step, you know, focus to get to, the analogy I've heard you say before that I love is um, building a brick wall. So let's maybe do the brick wall analogy. Yeah. If you're ever tasked with building a brick wall, don't focus so much on what the end wall is going to look like. Put all of your focus on laying each brick with care and precision. And if you can have the discipline to lay each and every brick with as much care and precision as possible, then the end wall will just take care of itself. So it's it's kind of like, you know, you want to have a vision of what it is you're building. What What is this wall? Is it part of a building? How tall is it going to be? There's nothing wrong with with being able to visualize what you want the end product to be, the goal, if you will. But once you've clarified that, which provides direction, take your eyes off of that and put it on what's right in front of you. And really all you can do at this moment is lay one more brick. So let's lay that brick as as perfectly as we can and then refocus the lens again and lay the next brick as perfectly as we can. And if we can do that consistently, um, the wall will eventually take care of itself. And, and that's really a, a nice bow tie to put on this entire conversation is, you know, it's great to have these goals and these North stars and things that we're pursuing, but let's get back to the process of what it takes to actually achieve those things and move towards those things. And if you can learn to actually love the work, if you can learn to love the process, if you actually enjoy laying a brick exactly where it needs to go, then you've already won. You know, to me, that's kind of the the big quote unquote secret of life is let's not worry so much about whether or not we achieve our goals. Let's learn to love the process in pursuing those goals. And then you've already won. You know, I love all of the unseen hours and behind the scenes work that goes into being a professional speaker. You know, um, I love the the, the pursuit and the, the marketing and the sales outreach to try to land certain events. And then once confirmed, I love all of the due diligence and the rehearsal and stuff that goes into actually getting on stage. I enjoy that. So I've already won in advance. Even if I don't get the gig that I wanted, I enjoyed the pursuit of at least being in contention for it. So even though I didn't get the external reward or result that I wanted, I still love the pursuit and the hunt and the hustle for it. 
And then if and when I land the next gig, I'll enjoy the due diligence and the rehearsal and the customization and the preparation that goes into that. So even before I've stepped on stage, I've already won because I love what I'm doing. I feel like I'm being of service. I'm doing something that I find purpose in that lights me up. So I, to me, that's really what, it, what it's all about is learning to figure out what it is you're pursuing find a process, a daily system and process that will constantly need to be tweaked and recalibrated, but learn to enjoy that. And with that said, there are going to be bumps along the way. You know, we're going to get some, some uh, rejection. We're going to get some no's. We're going to have some losses. Uh, And I'm also not suggesting that every moment of every day is something is just blissful joy. Of course, there are portions of the work that I do that aren't my favorite or aren't my preference, but they're a requirement and they're a necessity to what it is that I love to do so much. So I've, I've learned how to, you know, to make them palatable in order to pursue what I do. So for me, it is, it's all about the process and there are no outcomes that are guaranteed in life, you know, uh, which means since we can't guarantee it, all of us are in the game of trying to increase the chance that we get the desired outcomes that we have, that we get our preferences met. And it's been my experience and my observation with a variety of high performers that you drastically increase the chance of getting the result you want by pouring into the process. So for me, that's the name of the game. I mean, if you look at a basketball player, a basketball player cannot guarantee that the ball goes in the basket. If they could, they would never miss a shot. But what they can do is they can make sure they're on balance. They make sure they have good footwork. They make sure they shoot in rhythm and in range. They make sure that they've got good shooting mechanics. If they do all of those things consistently, like a Steph Curry, then the ball tends to go in the basket a lot more than it doesn't. And that's that's really how I view all of this. Yeah. Well, I, I love how you I love how you apply it to your life too. And I think what is very, very relatable about it is, I mean, you shared a tidbit earlier that you have children and, and I do too. My kids are three and six. And so, you know, trying to manage healthy family relationships and client relationships and growing a business and, and being present for my kids, there's so many different directions that I think life pulls you. And that's what makes the process all that more important. Because if you're not diligent about what you're pursuing, and again, you call it your, um, strength zone and we kind of call it our zone of genius. Yep. I mean, that work lights me up, man. I'm on fire about the stuff I do. And so if I'm on fire about it, I can be okay doing the things that are maybe not so exciting behind the scenes Yes. because I, I love working towards being an opportunity for the next play for the next basket that I might get to shoot and, and pursuing that. So, and I, and what I, again, back to you, I think what's so relatable about this is your, your life is maybe not that different than, than mine or other listeners to this. You know, yeah. you're, you're such a polished speaker. You're a sought after speaker. You've written books, all these amazing attributes that you have. You have a, a podcast that you've done like, have you done like 500 episodes on your, of your show? It's been a lot. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, so you have all these amazing things that you've done, um, but it just kind of goes to show like focus on the process. We all have things in life that we're dealing with. But if you can focus on the process, you can really, you can strive towards those things. Um, Alan, yeah, go ahead. One final thought that that just popped into my mind as you shared this, and this has been such a delightful conversation, is really everything is a matter of perspective. It's a matter of vantage point. It's a matter of, of, of a reference point that we're looking at. In theory, we're all looking at the same thing. 
but we're looking at it from different angles and different positions, which makes things look look differently. I mean, I'm incredibly grateful and thankful for the kind words that you just said. And and I'm proud of the career that I've had so far, and I'm, I'm proud of what I'm doing. And, and that is a vantage point. But one of my other struggles is I'm constantly looking at folks that I consider to be m- much farther ahead of me uh, in the game. You know, whether you're talking about writing books or you're talking about being on stages or, or their, their social following or whatever, and I'm looking at them thinking, my goodness, I haven't come close to accomplishing anything yet. Look at what these folks have done, you know, and it's all a matter of vantage point. And for me, I've learned that the comparison game is a very slippery slope and it's a really, it can be a trap, if you will. So what I've learned to do is I try not, and this goes back to our detaching from outcomes. I do my very best not to compare external results. So, I mean, this is no secret. James Clear has sold a lot more books than I have. I mean, James Clear, I think, has sold seven or eight million copies of Atomic Habits. Rightfully so. It's one of the best books I've ever read. And if for some reason someone listening or watching hasn't read it, go pick up a copy. But I don't need to worry about comparing how many books he's sold to how many I've sold because that will make me feel less than and feel pretty lousy. What I do compare are processes and say, what did James do to write such a prolific book? You know, what were the what were the things he did during the unseen hours? In his case, not for months, but for years and almost over a decade to go into that. And same thing with some of the speakers that I most admire. I'm not trying to be them and I'm not worried that they get paid a higher fee or are on bigger stages. But can I learn something from their process, from their journey? What is it they do? What's under the hood for them that's allowing them to have that level of mastery of craft and to be so good at what they do? And are those things that I can use to emulate and put into my process so I can continue to grow? But it's not about, I don't worry about whether or not James Clear sells more books than me, but is there something he does in his daily process that would be valuable for me to try to emulate to help me continue to level up? So the the comparison game, it just depends on how you use it. If you just measure external results, it's gonna leave you, it's gonna leave you feeling pretty lousy. They they say compare and despair. Because in any marker of life, I can easily walk outside of my office right now and find someone doing better than I am in any measure. I mean, personally or professionally, whatever. But that serves no, that's not gonna serve any benefit to my life. But if I can learn what others are doing to achieve a level of mastery or to get certain results or to move forward and improve, that's what I want to try to figure out. And it still goes back to this love of process. And and I say that now as if it's really easy to do. I still get hung up every now and then. I find, you know, I get feelings or urges of jealousy. I, I wonder, well, how did they land that speaking engagement and I didn't? Or how does that book sell more than mine when I actually think I have a better book? Those are new normal human tendencies. And, and I'm thankful that I now have an awareness to catch myself doing those things. And I quickly course correct because I, I, I don't want to be that person. You know, I don't want to be a jealous person. I don't want to be someone that, that, you know, I want to be cheering for everybody else, especially my colleagues in the space. I want to be thankful that someone like James has written such an awesome book that has been so helpful to me. I want to be thankful that I've got colleagues that are on huge stages spreading amazing messages to others so that we're all moving forward. So I'm just thankful now I have that awareness. I catch myself when I I find that I'm having some jealous feelings or I'm playing the external results comparison game 
and I quickly get back to the process and focusing on what I have control over, moving to the next play, dealing with rejections and no's and uh, politely and tactfully saying no to others. And if I can just continue to move that in the right direction, then I feel good about where I'm headed. Well, we're thankful for you. And what I would say, one of the things I've done as far as trying to detach from outcomes is I'll, I'll give a really good example. I do several different presentations on like hyper-specific topics in the financial planning world. So it might be social security, it might be Medicare, things that don't matter right now to you or me at this age, but when we're 65, 66, it's a really big deal. And the first, over the last decade, when I first did this, we're talking five, 10, 12, 15 people in the room giving these presentations. And first of all, let's just talk about like the comparison game of like, that's kind of, it's, I even recognize like that's laughable thinking about the audiences you speak to, right? Um, now, crawl, but not, but you know, crawl before I can walk and then walk before I can run. When I've now given like the biggest audience I've ever spoken in front of is like a, a room of 70. And if you had told me day one that I was going to speak in front of, hey, here's this assignment. You're going to speak on this thing you know really, really well. And you're going to do it in front of a room of 70. I would have been a nervous wreck. I was a nervous wreck when I spoke in front of three to five people the first time I did it. Sure. And what I liked, the, the, the idea in my mind was in detaching from outcome was, listen, if I can, at the end of this, help these people learn something, if they leave this room learning something more than they, something, a different perspective, something new that they didn't understand coming into this, and I help even one person, that's, that's fine for me. And it, it's always allowed me to focus on the process because then I can, I can stay in that mode of like develop my craft, deliver that message better, be better at this thing so that I can help more people. But if at the end of the day, I help one person, and maybe that's like a weird duality of that, I don't know, but that's something I've done to help myself detach from outcomes. No, I love that. Ultimately what you're saying, and this is really the key when it comes to being a speaker or a presenter or a coach or a teacher is taking the spotlight off of ourselves and putting it on being of service to others. You know, when, when we get nervous and anxious to speak, it's usually because we're worried about ourselves. How am I going to look? What if I say the wrong thing? What are people going to think about me? Well, it's not about us. Instead, I try to put it onto the audience. What can I do to be of service? What can I say to add value? How can I give of myself or my previous experiences to help benefit them? And then for me, the nerves just dissipate. It now becomes a healthy excitement. And if I mix that with proper preparation and rehearsal and due diligence, I can do so much of that during the unseen hours that when I show up on stage, all I have to do is be present. I, I'm not trying to memorize something word for word, or I'm not trying to you know, read off of some script. I know my stuff so well. And the only thing I'm concerned with at that moment is adding value to the audience and being of service to them. It doesn't really matter. Like I can just be present and I don't have to worry at all. And that's been a process getting there. But that's ultimately what I think you're, you're describing. Learn to love that process of being of value and being of service and doing the work ahead of time. And then you can just be present. And, you know, I, I've never given a perfect keynote. I've never given a perfect interview. I mean, if we go back and listen to this, you know, there's a couple of flubs. There's a couple of things I could have said differently. There's a couple of things I didn't say, but probably should have. I don't worry about any of that. All I worry about is being fully present and fully engaged and having the intention to be of service, in this case, to you and to your audience. And whatever's going to flow through me and come out is what's going to flow through me and come out. And it's not going to be perfect. And I'm okay with that. I'm at peace with that. 
Yeah, having having that grace with yourself on the other side of that, I think is really important, which is something that we can save for another podcast if you ever come back on the show. But Alan, that. you're you're the man. This was for sure one of the most exciting podcasts that we've done. And just we greatly appreciate you coming on the show, taking time to share your wisdom with our listeners. Um, I want to be respectful of your time as we're coming to an hour. Before I let you go, what would be some of the best places uh, for our listeners to follow you and learn more about you? Well, I appreciate that. The feeling's mutual. This was a whole lot of fun. It flew by. An hour can go by really quick yeah. when you're having a, an engaged, stimulated, connected conversation. Uh, my main hub is my website, allensteinjr.com. Uh, I am very active, very accessible, and very responsive on social media. And I am at Alan Stein Jr. on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, so if, if someone wants to ask a question, get in touch, share something, uh, you want me to elaborate on something, shoot me a DM on Instagram or LinkedIn. I'm very good about getting back to folks. And then if, if anyone's interested in either book or audiobook, uh, just search Raise Your Game or Sustain Your Game at Amazon or Audible or wherever you get your books and audiobooks. Uh, and if you invest your time and money into those, I certainly hope you enjoy them and you feel some benefit. And uh, yeah, other than that, man, let's definitely do this again sometime. This was fun. Well, you know, I've been a big advocate of the books. And so one of the things that, that we want to do on that note um, obviously we love spreading the message about above board and the conversations we have on our podcast. So anyone that's listening to us, uh, if you're willing to write a review for our show, screenshot it and send me an email of that review to John at canterpath.com. I'll be sending the first 20 folks who do that a copy of Alan's book of your choosing. So either raise your game or sustain your game. And who knows, maybe I'll do more than 20 if they're five-star reviews and not one-star reviews. We'll see. But um, as always, thank you everyone for listening to us on Above Board. Alan, you're the man. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see everyone next week.